The following podcast on the WDKX Podcast Network is provided by Vision Automotive. Every day we live, yeah. Every day we live, yeah. Every day we live, yeah. Every day we live. Welcome, Rochester, to the 12th episode of Let's Get Lit. We are so excited to have some amazing guests here in the building with us today as we talk about literacy and the housing crisis. And for those who are listening for the first time, LIT stands for Liberating Individuals Through Literary Text. So I'm going to let our beautiful guests introduce themselves. Hello, everybody. My name is Isaiah Santiago. I am 19 years old and a sophomore at St. John Fisher University. I am also the youngest elected official in the history of Rochester, New York, uh, preparing to take a seat on the Rochester City School Board. Hey there, everyone. My name is Keisha James. I co-direct the Anti-Racist Curriculum Project that's hosted at CCSI. I am a longtime educator in the Rochester City School District, as well as a licensed marriage and family therapist. So we're going to begin our conversation like we do um, each time, and that's asking this $5 question. When did you fall in love with literacy? So I would say I fell in love with literacy in fourth grade. Um, I'll never forget my teacher, uh, Mrs. Phillips. And she was incredible. I think it was one of the first times that I had somebody um, just validate who I was and and tell me that I was smart. And uh, I found myself just wanting to dig into more literature and learn more about just my people and and about what's happened um, here in this country. And she just fed that curiosity that I had. Uh, For me, it really started off in first grade. uh, And I'm still pretty close to my first grade teacher to this day, uh, Miss Redding. Um, at 22 school, uh, what we did is, is we had a reading and writing corner uh, that we'll do uh, a period throughout the day. Um, and Miss Redding would tell me to this day uh, that when it was time to finish the reading and writing corner, uh, I usually gave her problems about finishing because uh, I wanted to finish writing what I was writing or finish reading without what I was reading. Um, and now we look all the way to now with me being in college and I'm kind of tired of the reading and the writing after reading 500 pages every other day and uh, uh, 22 page papers throughout the semester. But it's not something that I've always enjoyed uh, because it gives me a chance to put my thoughts on paper. Uh, mm-hmm. It gives me a chance uh, to, to put the things that's going through uh, uh, my brain onto a paper um, and, and express it that way. So poetry has been something that I've been able to get into also uh, that, that I've really fell in love with throughout the years. That's amazing. And when I think about uh, when I fell in love with literacy, it went beyond the book. Um, I fell in love with literacy through spoken word and, and signs and people's passion um, to express themselves and to want to advocate for those who felt voiceless. And growing up and seeing my dad Um, at the Rochester City School District when he was a district parent, council president, and helping parents through various issues and listening to the tears and listening to the passion of wanting to do but not knowing how to. And when you think about the injustices that have been going on in the city of Rochester and I'm walking down streets and we're carrying signs and people are yelling slogans or Um, saying things to get people to agitate them to see the need, that's literacy in action. And I think that's something that many people don't 
um, a test to literacy, but it is. So we understand that literacy goes beyond the book. So we're going to begin to dive in um, to our conversation about the housing crisis and literacy, because I believe that the two go hand in hand. Uh, When I was doing some research and preparation for today, I came across an interesting fact that 33% of African-Americans in Rochester in 2023 are homeowners. And many of them are owning homes in areas that will not, as you said, uh, Keisha, will give them the generational wealth that they need. Within that, we also understand that we have private investors that are swarming in and uh, buying up houses in um, various areas in the 19th Ward, Avenue D. And you're looking at the average rent right now um, is anywhere between eighteen and $2,500 a month. Um, so another caveat to this, when we talk about literacy, we know that we are dealing with nomadic movement of our children and families because of this housing crisis. What are your thoughts about that? I think it has a huge impact when we think about um, students that are in transition of how they actually can show up for schools. When we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and what we need to just be fully human, the basic piece of that pyramid is food, shelter, clothing. And so if our, if our shelter is, if there's instability in our shelter, our students, how is it that they can show up and be prepared to learn or be in a space where they've got a good night's sleep or, you know, they have a, a safe place where they were able to rest their head at night um, or they know at the end of the day where they're going to be going home to. I've had students that were just unsure of even where they were spending, you know, night to night. And so thinking about that and in, in how much brain energy that takes up throughout mm-hmm. their day um, makes a lot of sense for them being able to struggle, you know, for them struggling, you know, to be able to pay attention or to learn or even be receptive to taking in what they're learning from their short-term memory to their long-term memory if mm-hmm. they haven't even had sleep. Absolutely. You know, and, and we think about if there's instabilities with sleep, what else is also connected? Is, they, is there consistent food, you know, and is, are they in a safe place emotionally, you know? And so all of those factors contribute to how we see some of our students showing up and how we need to be responsive as educators to that. Absolutely, Isaiah. I, b- I believe instability is a defining factor to success. Um, and, and when you don't know where you're going to go to after school is over, or you don't know how you're going to eat uh, this weekend, or, or how you're going to eat after uh, uh, school is over, it's extremely hard to actually focus and be receptive to what you're supposed to be learning. Um, and instability altogether is really defying uh, when it comes to academic success. Um, mm-hmm. And that's on a systematic level, that's on a family level, that's on an emotional level, and that's certainly on a housing level. Um, and I think that's important, um, and this, this is more speaking in the role that I'm preparing to take, but it's important to really understand that when we look at the problems of, of a low proficiency in literacy, um, and we look at the different problems in, in our different schools, it's important to understand all the, the factors that, that's contributing to this issue. Um, and it's important to be more, more collaborative between municipalities and between powers, understanding that Rochester doesn't get better if the education doesn't get better. And education doesn't get better if Rochester doesn't get better. Um, and, and when we really look at this issue altogether, 
Um, it's important to really understand how this instability of housing, of, of family, the instability of systematic, um, systematic problems uh, really is a defining factor towards the academic success of our young people. And I think that's very interesting because you see a connection here. Um, I have taught in city, suburban, Buffalo, charter. So I've seen every gambit of education. The only place I haven't taught is private. But I found a connective piece here. Wherever, even in suburban, put a red lining map over that district, and I will show you where the limited resources are. I will show you where the low-performing schools are. I will show you where um, you get the basically bottom-of-the-barrel uh, teachers where you get the ones who've been on tip plans because they just can't get it and they throw them into the schools where you have some of the greatest poverty. And when I define poverty, I define it as where it's low income housing, because you look at it for an example in Greece, which is the mirror to the next largest district to uh, Rochester put the redlining map over that and you will see a disparity of resources. So Keisha, what are your thoughts? Because you made a a very poignant statement about validation. Mm -hmm. And if we are validating one's education with housing and resources, but the redlining map is the greater validation Mm -hmm. and we have the monies, but the resources are not being equitably distributed how is that just as impactful? So I'm thinking that there's a few different pieces there. So Len, think about the, the redlining and the legacy of redlining that we're seeing now is, you know, for over 30 years, the, the government literally stated that people of color were hazardous and steered them into inner cities, places that have more industry, pollution, less trees. Um, in Rochester, in the inner city, it's hotter than it is temperature-wise. We see the asthma rates. There's so many factors that play a role because of the legacy of redlining that's happened. And and it's not just specific to Rochester. This is a problem all across our our country. So this is, redlining has impacted every area of our country, but we see it concentrated in a lot of urban areas. When we think about, we're gonna not only strip um, the resources from these areas, but then we're also gonna provide over 35 million white families handouts so that they can start to build generational wealth in the suburbs. And so the, we're literally seeing the legacy of the government saying these people are unworthy. They, they don't matter. And we're going to sit there and, and we're going to pull resources from their schools. We're not going to, if we don't have to educate them, there's not adequate food. There's one Wegmans in the city of Rochester and that's on East Ave. So if I don't have transportation. I guess you could call the one on Lyle in the city. That's if you see the line. <laughs> if, if, if you want to look yeah. at the line. But think about, like, like where are their chances to get healthy food, which mm-hmm. is another piece of that, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And so thinking about exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about what are the options that we have now, you know, forced on people and for over 30 years and not even talking about the, the drug a- epidemic that, you know, in the 80s and how that decimated our communities. Mm-hmm. And then now we want to sit here and blame the people versus the the system system Mm -hmm. and the system that was made up of people who are who were in charge who had power who said these people are unworthy in the actual law 
the government says that they do not want inharmonious racial groups mis- mixing, that they don't want to introduce an incompatible racial element into a suburban area because that's going to devalue the area. That's going to devalue the home ownership. And so even when black people or other people of color were able to move into suburbs, they were terrorized. Yeah. Their, their houses were sold from under them. Their yeah. children were terrorized. Even to this day, I work with kids in suburban schools across this this community and I hear the stories that kids are telling me and it Mm. breaks me to Mm. think about how they have to put on these shells to protect themselves to go to a quote-unquote better school Mm -hmm. to get a quote-unquote better better education education. (laughs) but what they're facing is they're losing their sense of self and Mm -hmm. who they are and they're realizing that who they are isn't enough so they have to put these 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 roles on or they have to be something that they're not to be accepted in these spaces, all of that is connected to redlining. Isaiah? I think really Keisha touched on on, on every point. Um, and, and this isn't an accident or a coincidence. Mm-mm. You know, Mm-mm. a lot of what we see is exactly what it was supposed to do. Absolutely. Um, but it's just on us now to deconstruct this mm-hmm. tolerance that we've allowed in our community for so many years um, and reconstruct a better understanding and who we are and what is needed I mean, that's a deeper conversation is, is are we ready to really look at these things that we've made traditions, these things that we've made the norm, the status quo, and are we really ready to challenge that on how ineffective it is in our community? Um, and, and not even, you know, going a little bit away from, from, from redlighting, even when we look at how we discipline our students in, in schools and definitely schools in the urban setting, um, definitely with suspensions. Suspensions is something that we really do have to look at. I mean, of course, if a student is being uh, obviously harmful towards other students or towards themselves and the only option is to, to suspend, I understand that. But when we come to a point where we're suspending students for pulling out their phone or walking through the, audi- uh, walking through the hall, um, we have to really focus on how that's affecting the, the literacy of our young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't get the education if you're not in the schools. Mm-hmm. You can't get the education if you're suspended. And a lot of times what happens is, and, and I understand this off of personal experience, you're suspended, you're not given a packet of work. You're not given any instruction. You're just suspended in your home. And we have to look at how that really affects the literacy of our young people. And if we look at the numbers compared to the urban setting and the suburban setting, the suburban setting, you barely see out-of-school suspensions. In the urban setting, we see a consistent number of out-of-school suspensions, which is, which is creating a cycle. One, of, of, of our young people not being able to, to, to get the instruction that they deserve. But two, what are we really accomplishing when we kick our young people out of the school and then bring them right back just to come right back in with no actual solution or conversation? Um, and we have to look at that because it becomes a cycle. And then when we see uh, young people get into things, it's like if they're suspended in their home and there's a parent who's struggling with housing and there's a parent who doesn't have the, the money to take off of work to watch their child. And right now, as we see in the Rochester streets, what's going on, what do you think is going to happen to this young person? Um, so we have to really look at the status quo on, on the things that we're putting in our system to purposely do what it's doing. And challenge those things. And I think it's something that I would like for us to think about, and I want to couch it in this perspective. Um, A lot of people talk about that we need to not do outside suspension, and I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. 
when you as an educator understand the importance of people who come in and purposely hijack the educational experience and don't have a desire to want to, but then you have another layer that we don't talk about. It's not about the suspension we need to talk about. It's called we are socially promoting students at a high rate for over 30 years. So you're telling me you have Craig, who's now in the ninth grade, reading at a third grade level. You're going to see suspension rates. You know why? Because Craig is going to show us behind because the system chose Mm -hmm. to push him along, knowing he did not have the foundational framework that he needed, did not give mom and dad the resources they needed at home to help him be what he needs to be. Therefore, they're growing And now we have another layer that we have to validate now, because now you want the teacher to now be able to sift in, get you from the second grade to the ninth grade in the midst of teaching you ninth grade material. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you don't want your peers to know that you can't read. Therefore, you become oppositional defiant because you don't want to be labeled as an ignorant individual. And when we look at, and this is a very interesting dynamic that many people don't know. If you look at many suburban districts, they are suspending. And you know who is leading the suspensions? Those black and brown students. Absolutely. And you know how much of the percentage they make up is not even 10%. But you know who's leading 100% of failing math? failing reading and leading and either being expelled, kicked out or pushed out. So we, we really want to be mindful of what is suspension supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Suspension is supposed to create, and this is where the therapist had and you, I want to switch to um, Keisha, because if we do not begin to understand meeting those needs, if we're not giving our students and parents the the things they need to be able to say, you know what, I don't know how to break through this. There's a lot of trauma. And that's what Brenda Brightful talked about last week, the mask. Many of our students are wearing a mask because they're either not black enough or they have to act hard mm-hmm. or they feel like they have to be street. Mm-hmm. So what is that? doing to the narrative of literacy and liberation? I think it's our kids are in survival, right? Where they have to, they have to maintain on top of the fact that their brains are not even fully developed yet. So they're coming in spaces. Our our brains don't get fully developed until we're about 25 years old. And the last part that develops in our brains is the very, it's called the prefrontal cortex. It's right behind our foreheads. And that's where we can analyze consequences we understand you know sequencing and different things like that and so our students are trying to figure out first of all one of the hardest times of their life of who they are Mm -hmm. who they want to be Mm -hmm. and then they're they're set in in classrooms where they don't either feel seen they feel like you know they're going to be made fun of like you said and so I think one of the things that we need to be thinking about is yes we need to make sure that 
we are educating our students, but we need to make sure we love our kids first. Period. We need to make sure that we see them as human beings. And I always say this, it's human beings first, it's students second. Because if I can meet you as a human being and let you realize that I care about who you are, bigger than this classroom, bigger than this space, I care about where you're going to go in life. And if students know that I'm investing in that, I'm showing up, and then I'm also going to share some of myself with you and why I'm here and, and, and letting students know, like, you are my why. I became what I needed. I didn't have the safe adults that I needed as a kid, so I became that because I don't want future generations to have to go through what I went through. And so for me in my classroom when I was teaching, like, every single year my test scores were doubling. And people were like, what's going on in your class? When my sixth graders were coming in, every single one of them had failed the fifth grade test. Mm -hmm. But they're leaving my classroom jumping six reading levels. And part of that was because, number one, I only taught ELA. So we departmentalized in in my grade level where... I got to focus on one topic and I got to do that really, really well. I got coaches that came in to support me because I said, listen, I don't know how to do this piece of it. Can you come in and model for me Mm -hmm. so I can see what I'm missing and what I'm doing? It's that constant Mm -hmm. constant learning. And then I'm asking my students feedback. How was that? What did you think about that? Mm -hmm. How do you want to learn in here? How do you want me to show you that I care about you? So I'm making sure that my class is led by my students. And when we have issues, how do we repair this together? Because we're in this together. And I would have kids that be like, miss, I don't want to leave your class. I don't want to go to the next class because they don't teach. I want to stay here. Um, You know, and so what are we, how are we leading with love? Mm -hmm. How are we making sure as educators that we are continuously learning in areas that we are not proficient in, that we're leaning in and saying, and being vulnerable and saying, help me. That's right. You know, it doesn't. Building community. Absolutely. Who do I need to bring in from the community in my classroom to help students see other things? How am I making sure I'm bringing students' interest into the classroom? When I brought in books that reflected my students, the shift in everything that you do, the shift and change, kids would be like, I don't want to go to lunch. Just like you were saying, I want to mm-hmm. keep reading. And I'm like, I know, but I'm hungry. So y'all, right. y'all gonna <laughs> we got to go, go to lunch. lunch. We got to go because I'm hungry. Or after school, the kids would, you know, before running Could around the gym, all kinds of stuff. They're sitting there all in the gym reading books. Mm-hmm. Look, look at this. Did you see this? Can you, yo, let me read that next. I mean, and the, the people in our school program were like, what did you do? And I was like, I just helped them see themselves. Period. That's it. And I made space for them. Period. And so how are we doing that in education? You know, because you can't control their kids' lives. You, you have no impact on what happens outside. But what can you do in that space in that, that you're in that's day right. in and day out? Ten months out of the year, that's a lot of time. Absolutely. No, I, and I, I think that everything, you know, that was said is definitely, you know, important. And we have to look at, at the relationship, you know, when it comes to our students. And mm-hmm. I'll say an elementary school is, is the best time to do that. But also an elementary school is, as far as my memory, the best relationships that I had with my teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, to this day, my first grade teacher, she checks on me every other week. Like, how's everything going? How's mm-hmm. college doing? Um, but it's important to make sure that that relationship happens because it gives the young people a passion to do what they got to do to make sure that, that they're getting it done. Um, and then it also, you know, for some young people who don't have that love at home, um, and who don't have that connection and that smile in the morning and that, um, and that love in the morning as they get ready to start the day, um, this, this allows them and it, it, it changes their day. Um, it allows them to really uh, uh, succeed um, in what they want to do because they know that there's somebody who's going to be there for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I make this clear as I speak, you know, throughout the state to other young people and other adults that it's important not to give up on young people. Okay. It's important not to give up on students. I know as teachers, sometimes it's hard because there's some students who's just, 
straight disrespecting and some students who, who's coming straight at you. But those are the students. And what they're doing that is to get your attention. And they're really crying for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important not to give up on these young people because this sometimes this is all they need is a smile in the morning. Absolutely. A good morning. And, and I'll tell you guys, I remember and, and I, I moved throughout households between my grandmother, my godmother, my father, my mom. Um, and, and I remember the mornings that I got the smiles and the easy wake up and, and, and the, the your bus is almost here and the breakfast. It's the days that, that I had a really good day. Mm-hmm. But the days that I got woken up by being yelled at and telling, let's go, we got places to be. Those are the days that, that I came into school and didn't do my best. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important not to give up on these young people, but to really focus on on how important love and care and nurturing these young people are when it comes to education and make sure that they're they're collecting the information that's needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I do through my program, Let's Get Lit, um, is building home libraries. And when you look at the keyword in there is home. Mm-hmm. But if your home is nomadic, how are you going to build your home library if you're trying to keep up with everything because your home is constantly moving? So when we talk about the importance of what schools are supposed to provide, back in the days, many kindergarten, first grade, second grade students in the city school district went on field trips to the library with their parents by the district to make sure everybody in the household, especially the parent and the student, had a library card. We don't do that anymore. And when I did my Let's Get Lit program, a couple of the students was like, Miss Flo, so we got to pay to get our membership at the library. That almost made my stomach shake. I said, what membership? Because the culture or the assumptive world is that everybody in the community knows that the library is a free place. But the question is, what are we doing in the district to expose our children Mm -hmm. to the same resources that some of the children get while others are not? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about equity and resources, we're also talking about experiences. We don't do field trips anymore. We don't get out in the communities. You know why? Because we don't have neighborhood schools. Mm -hmm. Neighborhood schools and elementary school afforded you because there is a library in almost every neighborhood Mm -hmm. but if we're now busing everybody if there is no connectivity to anybody then i don't see a neighborhood i see splices of area with no connectivity now you go into the school you have that same mentality splices no connectivity so if i'm a parent and i have to take three buses to get to the school after school to come to a meeting and have to go home and cook is the likelihood of me coming to the school a priority? No, it's not. So as leaders in the district, we have to reprioritize how we develop policy that is directly and indirectly impacting our community. We have to understand the verbiage we use when we see, say, neighborhood versus community. A neighborhood school is totally different from a community school. So when we begin to see that we're closing schools in neighborhoods, that children are walking to families are present and we want to disturb that. Mm -hmm. Now it goes back to what you said, Keisha about what is redlining. Redlining is larger than just homes. And if people don't begin to see the connectivity of redlining and literacy, we're going to miss another generation of young people because we're not just losing them in the streets. 
we're losing them in the seats. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you all as we get ready to close, um, why do you think it's important for us to reimagine how we're not only teaching, but advocating for equity in housing? Because they talked about rent control and the average house right now, I looked up uh, earlier, but they said the average house in 2023 at the medium price was $187,000 in Rochester. On Scottsville Road, I just tickled my fancy and asked the the person, how much are you selling this? How much is this house going for? On Scottsville Road, they said $148,399, and it was a two-bedroom house. So why do you think rent control is so important to creating better stability for homes? Well, I think about the um, average household income for black people in our community is $30,000. Jesus. And so if we look at, and that's from, you know, 2014 to 2018. So maybe a little bit more now the last five years, right? But Mm -hmm. probably not too much more. So even if you say 35,000 and you think about a house that costs 1,800, that's 70% of someone's income. Who can afford that? And so when we think about, you know, that, that impact of, you know, if I, if constantly we're moving around, right, we're losing our stability here, how are we able to, like you said, show up? And when we think about reimagining education, what has been happening in this system is not working for our kids. It was never designed to work for our students. Absolutely. It was designed to create a bunch of, we have, you know, a bunch of sheep to follow along. Versus people that can think for themselves, that are curious, that are that, you know, feel empowered and and have that that sense of self-worth. And so when I think about the the impact of rent control, like how essential that would be for our students to know and their parents and their families to have the stability there to know that, okay, my rent is going to be this. And I know that I've worked and I can afford this amount. Mm -hmm. But if you have to be in fear every year of that rent going up a couple hundred dollars, like how are you? And then every, like you said, everything around is so expensive. Where is it that they can, where is it that people can go and they can live? Right. And then how does that and and let's be very clear, student or kids are very aware of what happens in their families, even if it's not talked about with them. Absolutely. You can pick that up. You can feel it, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, we like money is an issue here. We're struggling. Right. So kids are picking that up and then they're bringing that into schools. Right. And and because they can't not they can't turn it off. We're, We're human. And they don't have the tools to do what we as adults can do, like put something on a shelf and focus on like they don't have that, you know. Um, And so we're seeing that in our classrooms. And, you know, what I think is so important is like we have to empower our kids. Mm -hmm. We have to let them know that, you know, you have a choice in, in what you can do and who you can be. And I always tell my kids, the one thing people can never take from you is your is your education. Education, that's you right. You know, like they could take your house, they could take your money, they could take all of that stuff. But you, once you know and you have that awareness, no one can take that from you. And so I was stressed to my kids. I'm like, what do people say about kids that live in the city? You know, let's talk about those stereotypes that what they have. And I want to feed life into you because I know when you walk outside of these walls, when you're walking on the street, people are not doing that. Absolutely. Right. And people have this expectation of, oh, you're from this area. You're mm-hmm. one of those kids. So we got to combat that. But I want you to combat it with a sense of self. I want you to feel empowered with just who you are. And it's not about getting out of the hood. Right. How are we making our area what we want it to be? 
So what I'm going to do at this time, I want to thank you all both. And I just, when it starts to get cooking, it's always time for us to wrap it on up. But um, Keisha, could you shout out uh, what you all have coming up next? Absolutely. So um, our website is www.resistancemapping.org. All of our curriculum is free and open source on there. Next Thursday from 7 to 9, we will be um, screening July 64 and our very new documentary called Home Access Denied at the Little Theater. It is a free screening for everyone in the community. Please come out. Thank you. And we want to thank Isaiah for coming. And just I want to not only commend you, but congratulate you because it is very, very important for our young people to see other young people who want to not only make a difference, but be the change they want to see. And is there anything you want to say in our parting words? Absolutely. Um, It's important to understand that our young people and the place that we are with our contemporary issues, our young people aren't tomorrow they aren't next week. They're not next year. They're right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't invest in our young people and allow our young people to invest in themselves on a family level, on a system level, on a community level, that Rochester won't be anything if we don't allow our young people to thrive and allow our young people to have a voice and allow our young people to be important and as important as they are. Um, So it's important that as we talk about literacy, as we talk about advocacy, that we're really focusing on our young people and where our young people are and giving them a voice to to tell the people about uh, the things that they're going through and about the solutions that's possible to help deal with what they're going through. Um, So we're at a time where we have to empower youth voice. Um, And we have to really invest in our young people because if we don't, there won't be a tomorrow. So let's make sure that we invest in our young people and make Rochester a better place. We're going to end with a poem by Nikki Grimes called Taking Notice. Upright or curled on the cracked sidewalk with newspapers for a blanket, the homeless, weary, go unseen, save for the stray dogs that lick their feet. Let's get Lit. Thanks for listening to this podcast on the WDKX Podcast Network. Provided by Vision Automotive.